Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're joined now by the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. Uh, Premier, lots for us to talk about, but what we're hearing coming out of uh, Ukraine is absolutely horrifying. How's what's your what's your the response? What's your reaction? You have a large Ukrainian community in Saskatchewan. We we do, Roy, and, and thank you for having me on uh, here today. And I did listen to your interview with uh, uh, Mr. Guerin, uh just a few minutes ago, and it's 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 quite troubling uh, what we are hearing uh, day in day out coming out of Ukraine with this. Uh, uh, with this Russian invasion uh, into Ukraine, you're, you're correct. In Saskatchewan, we have about 15% of our population can uh, trace their roots uh, back uh, to Ukraine, and so this is paramount uh, for our province. And we've uh, stepped in various ways to uh, support uh, uh, the in any way we can, and ultimately now looking at how we can support uh, uh, the flow of uh, Ukrainian essentially refugees uh, from. Uh, areas of the EU to Saskatchewan, whether that be for a month, uh, for three months, six months, a year, or forever, um, whatever that is, um, we want to do what we can to support and to get those families to a safer, safer area of the world. Uh, because I, I just, quite simply, um, no, no one knows how long this is is going to go on. Um, it may go a while. I had the opportunity to visit with a, a number of refugees last week when I was in Castle, Germany, and. Uh, the the determination and the resilience uh, that that uh, many of uh, of those families had had put forth, they just simply said, "We're never going to leave our homes, and there's no way for Putin to win this war." And I heard that same determination uh, in, uh, in in Dmitry Guren's uh, uh, interview just a couple of minutes ago. Yeah, amazing strength and resilience from the people of Ukraine, uh, Premier. I, I've covered terrible stories in my career terrible stories and uh, sometimes uh, i wake up at three o'clock in the morning and think about them involuntarily uh the story that's coming out of ukraine is is just absolutely the worst when you think of the the people of that nation who were living their lives as we're living our lives in this country now six weeks ago eight weeks ago they had great concern about the russians massing on the border but they weren't sure that uh, the russians were going to attack and now six weeks later their their country, much of it is in ruins, and their people are are absolutely um, uh, treated with terror. So, um, yeah, let, let's talk about the the other issues that we were going to discuss because there's a lot to talk about that's going on in this country, and you have very strong opinions, Premier, on what's been said by the Prime Minister and steps that the government is taking. So, what I want to do is just play back a little clip of you that was on your Twitter feed. And then I want to ask you about it. Tom, play it. And we need to ask ourselves three questions. Is this the right time to impose and on April 1st increase a carbon tax? Is this the right time for us in this nation to seriously look at banning oil tankers off the west coast of Canada? Is this the right time for us as a national government to make it more difficult to build a new pipeline or build a new mine or, or a new manufacturing facility? And the answer to each of those questions is no, no, and most certainly not. Premier, I've heard you on this program express frustration. I have heard you I thought angry about what was coming out of Ottawa at certain times. I'm hearing a Scott Moe who's just had enough. Am I right? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and 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 we see, uh, you know, this past week the federal government is, uh, you know, talking about other uh, initiatives on on the climate change file that they, uh, uh, you know, think they're 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 going to put forward, and and you know whatever that's that's the talk that they ultimately can have. But here, here's the questions we we do need to have a look at as Canadians, and and really think about. Uh, you know what impact uh, our policies are having not only on on us as Canadians but having on other areas of the world and if you want to uh, see um, what impact uh, these types of policies that the federal government is is attempting to put forward in Canada you, you know what impact they have look no further than the EU I, I was there uh, last week uh, the questions on the minds of uh, those folks in the EU and the UK for that matter are are simply around uh, their energy security. They get about 35-40% of their coal, oil, and natural gas from Russia. Um, and in, pending, in, in the next number of months, uh, very serious questions around food security is we don't know to what level Ukraine is going to be able to seed a crop. They're a, a major wheat exporter uh, in, uh, in the Eastern Europe area. And th- these two questions are, are top of mind uh, on, on folks in the EU. And then quite frankly, they, they are concerned with what has led them uh, to be in this very, very vulnerable position uh, where they are absolutely reliant on uh, you know, countries, mainly Russia in, uh, and, and countries in Eastern, Eastern Europe, for their, their energy security and for their food security. And ultimately, I think with now seeing what is happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's huge concerns around their, econ- their economic sovereignty and really their sovereignty as, as, as EU nations. Yeah. I, I was speaking, uh, when I spoke with uh, Bjorn Lomborg in the last hour, I suggested that Europe really is the energy, uh, the canary in the energy coal mine for the rest of the world. And um, so what uh, what did you see? What did you hear in the UK and and in Germany? Because we understand the German energy minister has told the people of the country, cut back on your electricity use. Because we're running short. I mean, they're coming out of the winter, they're going into spring, and you have also France has done the same thing, warning their citizens to cut back. This is a continent that not so long ago was energy self-sufficient as we were not so long ago. And they've outsmarted themselves with foolish climate policy, uh, essentially, is what, what has occurred. Um, or the people, at least, have been uh, fooled by by uh, respective governments introducing uh, the, these types of these type of these types of policies. What, what I heard uh, when we were in in Germany, uh, in the EU, and, and even in the UK is is we're reliant on Russia for our for our gas, our oil, and our, our coal. We we this is a, a huge dilemma for us. Um, they went back to um, not only uh, nuclear plants that are starting to be phased out, but also coal-fired plants that are being phased out, and asked them if they could ramp up production uh, for a period of time. I'm not sure that they can, and that ultimately has required the, the, the German government to ask uh, German, in the case of Germany, for them to curtail their use. It's a problem that might have some global issues as well, is this isn't just homes uh, turning the dial down on their thermostats a little. This is major centers of manufacturing, uh, automobiles, uh, aircraft, uh, um, agricultural chemicals. Many of those are manufactured uh, in, in the country of Germany, quite uh, in energy intensive. And so this may have an impact. This, this, this uh, uh, reliance on a, a rogue nation, essentially, uh, for, their, for their, energy, their energy supply may actually have a, a much larger impact on the world than we realize uh, just here today. 
and it may actually leak into some serious food security issues in the next uh, in the next number of months. There, there was two questions that we discussed over there, if I could, Roy. Um, one was uh, uh, those in the EU are having a very good look in the mirror right now as to where they're buying their their products from. Where are we buying our food? Where are we buying our energy from? And are they a reliable, trustworthy partner? Russia is not. Canada, and I would put forward Saskatchewan, most certainly is. And then how are those products actually being produced? And when you look at, and I'll use Saskatchewan as, as the example, and I've said this on your show many times, our agri-food products, our oil products, our, our potash products, our uranium products are produced with a much lower carbon content uh, than their competitors around the world. In the case of potash, uh, those are competitors, Belarus and Russia. Uh, most certainly, uh, Saskatchewan potash is the most sustainable potash you can buy in the world. And the question we were being asked is, how how can we get more of that into the EU? And so that's what we're working on uh, post this uh, last week's trip uh, into uh, the EU and the, and the UK. I've heard a lot said about fertilizer, lack of fertilizer, part of it because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But also I've heard that this federal government frowns on fertilizer use Am I right? What's the situation with that? And how significant is the fertilizer for Saskatchewan? Well, uh, yes, uh, the, the federal government is starting to talk about taking their, their climate change conversation agriculture. We just won't stand for that in Saskatchewan. There's, there, there's, uh, there's just no room for that to risk our food security and to risk the food security of uh, our allies around the world that we provide uh, food with. Saskatchewan has 40% of the arable farmland in Canada. Much of the innovation that not only boosts production, but also uh, makes it one of the, if not the most sustainable agricultural industry in, in industry in the world. And yes, from a climate change perspective, and yes, if the federal government wants to meet any net zero uh, targets by 2050, uh, Saskatchewan agriculture and innovation is going to be a, a large part of that. Uh, with respect to fertilizer, uh, we're, we're seeing uh, almost a tripling in some cases of, of fertilizer prices uh, here uh, in, in the prairie provinces. That, that's challenging for, for our ag producers as they uh, look to put a crop in. Some of that is, is due to uh, just inflation uh, that has been occurring around the world. But some of that is, is uh, also in part due to um, one of the other uh, major uh, or significant fertilizer providers in the world uh, is, is Belarus and, and Russia, in particular when it comes to potash fertilizer, competing directly with, with Saskatchewan products. And this is where that uh, the Canadian government should be, in my opinion, carrying a message like, like we were this past week, is you should be buying your fertilizer from Saskatchewan because we want a long-term uh, trading relationship. We're a trusted and reliable supplier. And it's the cleanest fertilizer in the world that you can buy. Now, you're not buying it from a rogue nation, and you're doing right by the government by by uh, offsetting or replacing a furnished uh, fertilizer that you might buy from a, that that is uh, produced on, in nowhere near uh, the same sustainability matrix. So, this is how the federal government, in many cases, should be uh, approaching climate change from that global global perspective. Is understanding that our products in in Saskatchewan and Canada are already the most sustainable in the world. Yes, we need to work to, uh, you know, make them mo- even more sustainable in the future, and we'll do that by achieving our, our net zero by 2050. But to start piling on additional regulations are, is ultimately uh, the UN's uh, traditional climate change plan. It's what the one that the EU had adopted. I think Bjorn Lumberg had said that was the initiative that essentially was providing uh, the Putin administration a half a billion dollars a day by people going and buying there because they're shutting 
uh, in production in the EU. And we shouldn't be looking at mirroring this situation in Canada, or we might find ourselves in that same very vulnerable position where we uh, do not have our own energy security. We do not have uh, food security in this nation. And ultimately, it's going to threaten our sovereignty as a nation. And that's what we are seeing happening in Europe today. And and so we, we should <laughs> we should be looking at what hasn't worked and should, uh, you know, really change to, uh, you know, developing a narrative and a plan that is going to work for Canadians first, uh, but also for the world. Yeah. Sometimes you have to ask yourself, what's the agenda? Premier, how many other premiers support let's say, pipelines to Tidewater so we can export oil to the world that still needs it. And the, even, you know, the International Energy Association very clearly states that we're going to need oil in the world for decades to come. Now, how many leading politicians in, in Canada challenge tanker bans on the West Coast? There's no tanker ban on the East Coast, so I guess... If anything pollutes on the East Coast, it's okay, not on the West Coast. That has to be the conclusion of the uh, initiative by Mr. Trudeau. How many challenge the massive daily importation of foreign oil? And how many challenge the increasing carbon tax at a time like this? Are you on your own? No, uh, most certainly not. And I, I think it's, when you break out each of those conversations, and this is what the, the often the federal government and, and anyone that's pushing a, a, some type of an agenda around the world will do, but they will break out one of those those topics and, and have the conversation or the argument on whether or not it is virtuous or not. And, and what we really need to have a conversation about it as Canadians is, is uh, you know, infrastructure in general, not just pipelines that are carrying oil, but we have a number of LNG plants that were not built due to federal uh, regulations that were in place. Uh, we have a number of pipelines, oil pipelines, that were not built uh, because of, of federal regulations that were put in place, Bill C-69 for uh, all of those. I mean, we always have, uh, you know, various infrastructure challenges with getting our food and our fertilizer around to the areas of North America where it ultimately needs to be. Sometimes that is a, a port facility. But all of this infrastructure, we need to bring this together and the regulations that come in place, like carbon taxation and those things, and ensure that we are focusing, yes, on the environment, but also ensuring we're not taking our eye off the ball and we are prioritizing our Canadian, and I always say even our continental, but let's, let's concentrate on our Canadian energy security. Let's ensure that we are prioritizing and focusing our Canadian food security and ultimately our economic and our, our political sovereignty as a nation by ensuring that we can take care of ourselves. This is where I would say that the EU has taken their eye off the ball this is where I would say that many in the EU, the large proportion that I talk to, realize that um, we should not replicate um, what has not worked in the EU here in Canada. We should choose a different path. It's a path that would treat us uh, far better in the next number of decades as Canadians. And I would say it's also a path that ultimately uh, would put the world on a better trajectory to not only um, not funding rogue nations like what has happened uh, in the case of Russia, put us on a better path to choosing the products that are produced more sustainably by uh, more uh, more trustworthy nations and so you know that that was in in a, in a nutshell is really what we talked about here this past week um, okay. I, I saw the federal government come out with a, a plan uh, there past week this past week on uh, 42 percent reduction of emissions in the, in the energy industry that that isn't going to apply uh, right. in, in Saskatchewan 
I mean, you can ignore the reality of what the situation might be, but you cannot ignore the consequences of that reality. And, okay, and that's what the EU is being faced with right now. Afghans who formerly served with Canada's armed forces in Afghanistan and plead to enter this country, many of them remain left out of this nation with their lives threatened by the Taliban. You know, we've We've spoken with interpreters in Afghanistan who talked about the danger they were in and the fears they had for themselves and their families, and we've heard reports that some have been horribly murdered by the Taliban. Other interpreters who were lucky enough to get out of the country are seeking shelter in other countries, including Ukraine. Now, for about 10 years, we've been speaking with Left Behind Alex, an interpreter for the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan for more than a year. He's now in the United States, but his dream after working with Canadian forces for more than a year has always been, and he's expressed this since day one, is to live in Canada, to come to Canada. Uh, it hasn't happened for him. He's filled out the forms. He's written to the prime minister. He's written to the official opposition leader. He's written to members of parliament. They've essentially said to him, not much we can do for you, but good luck. So we're going to talk with Left Behind Alex now. And uh, joining him is uh, his former commanding officer, his former officer with the PPCLI, and that's Major Alexander Watson. Uh, Major Watson did try to intervene for Alex uh, before he left Afghanistan, before Major Watson did. And with us as well is Major General Dean Milner, who's the former commanding officer of the Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan. Uh, Alex, we also know your real name is Sajad. Congratulations, baby boy, three weeks old. How are you? Oh, well, first of all, thank you very much for letting me in in the show. So thank you very much. Uh, well, thank you about that. Yeah, he's doing really good and he's uh, growing. But my, my other boy is so jealous about it. Well, you'll take care of that. Your dad. Yeah, sure. I was at home for 21 days. You know. Yeah. Hey, tell us, please, remind our listeners, some of whom will be hearing you for the first time, others have heard you many times over the last 10 years on this program. Why is it so important for you to come and live in Canada? It's a good question. So once again, I would like to emphasize on, we served in uniform. I know we didn't, I mean, we were unarmed, but... We served on, I mean, in uniform on the front lines in Afghanistan alongside CAP members. We were as cultural advisors and interpreters. We came under attack. We survived. We sacrificed. So our, our biggest dream was to come to Canada and live in peace and tranquility. But that dream never came true for me. Uh, I mean, what I, what I want from Canada or Canadian government authorities is to let me in legally. I came all the way from Afghanistan, very close. I'm in the United States. I don't want to cross the border like an illegal immigrant. I want to be welcomed equally like other interpreters. There was, an, there was a program ended. I couldn't succeed. I mean, I couldn't go, go through that program because the program was so short. It was a special immigrant program. I wasn't aware of it. And I, I just want to be welcomed and I want to be treated equally. 
Yeah, I should tell our listeners that you're in the United States because as you were an interpreter in Afghanistan, you worked with some of the other militaries who were there, including the American military, the Australians, and the Polish special forces. But your dream, after working with Canadian forces for more than a year, was and remains to come to Canada. Let's talk to Major Alexander Watson, formerly of the PPCLI, who commanded the unit that Alex was in. Major Watson, do you want to say hello to Alex? Alex, how are you? Good, good. I'm really humbled listening, I mean, uh, your voice. I'm mean, really pleased to have you on the show. How are you doing, sir? How is your family doing? Uh, well, everybody's really well. I'm not Major Watson anymore. I'm a lawyer now, so I don't know if that means yeah, I'm yeah. up in your esteem or down in your esteem. That's a good question. Anyway, That's another show. If you were a lawyer right now, even if you were a lawyer right now, but still, I am thankful you for your services for the every every man and woman in uniform who served and sacrificed in Afghanistan. That's still appreciated. We didn't. We never forget it. Well, you know what was interesting was, uh, you know, we would come and go for a six to nine month tour. I did three tours in southern Afghanistan between 2002 and 2009, but the interpreters just stayed there. You know, they, you know, I remember being in a, in a gun battle where my personal interpreter, Hamayun, as soon as the guns started firing, he just rolled underneath the building and started eating a chocolate bar. I mean, he was so used to the violence and, uh, you know, he'd endured it for a decade by that point that he thought it was time to eat a chocolate bar. So, no, the interpreters really, really bore the brunt in a way that, you know, the soldiers always got to go home, uh, you know, except for the ones who didn't, obviously. I'll call you Major Watson. Uh, if you don't mind. Um, Major, I've heard from others who served with the interpreters like Alex, and actually a, a soldier who served with Alex, that these interpreters saved Canadian lives simply because of their willingness to go out into battle unarmed, knowing they'd be primary targets for the Taliban, and because they not only knew the language, but they knew the customs, and they knew how to warn Canadian soldiers from situations which might have cost them their lives. is Would you support that? Oh, that's exactly true, Roy. So, I mean, every time we, you know, left the wire, we did it with interpreters, and we were walking ground that was laden with explosives. Those interpreters were walking on the very same ground that we were. Uh, they were riding in the exact same vehicles that we were that got struck. And in fact, their families were in danger as well, because, uh, you know, if the Taliban found out that they were working for the coalition, their families were in danger as well. So, you know, their danger, in fact, was multiplied over what we were enduring. Okay. Major General Dean Milner, who was a former commanding officer of Canadian forces in Afghanistan. Major, Mil Major General Milner has been on this program on a number of occasions, and we've talked with him about the situation in Afghanistan, and the general has been involved with and continues to be involved in an effort to get interpreters and Afghan citizens who served Canada's purposes uh, during that 10-year period into this country. General Milner, good to talk to you again. What do you make of Alex's situation and the fact that when he contacts the federal authorities, what he gets back is, well, not much we can do for you. Good luck. Well, it's always great to be on your show, Roy, and uh, and it's great to hear Alex's voice. Uh, I'm a huge, huge fan of our interpreters. Uh, I've got countless stories myself, uh, and uh, we never, we will never stop trying to to bring you great Afghans in into Canada. As a matter of fact, I was just talking to my own battle buddy Ahmed Abibi a few minutes ago. But uh, and good to hear your voice. Uh, we'll say Major Alex. 
as well. I mean, the time that you spent over there in Afghanistan, well done to you. Lawyer side, I'm not quite sure, but uh, but anyway, it, it, it's, uh, you know, there's it's inexcusable, Roy. Um, the fact that he's, you know, Alex has tried with our government to, to, to come into Canada just does not make sense that we've even said no. Um, the bureaucracy is, is just, it's getting in the way too many times. And, uh, you know, there's no reason. We need to get Alex uh, into the country. Um, tell, it's like pulling teeth sometimes. We've, we've, we've pulled in about 700 over the last couple months. Our, our Am and Lara team, who's been doing some great work, um, is, is still pulling in Afghans as we speak. Uh, but it has slowed of late with Ukraine and other things on the go. But uh, but yeah, it's just it's just inexcusable. We we need to get Alex and his family into the country. Um, thank goodness he's in the United States. I mean that that's that's a good start, but it's not not uh, far enough, you know. Yeah, uh, Major Watson, you uh, interceded on yeah. Alex's behalf. Did you not? You officially d- try to help him get get into Canada. Tell us about that and what the result was. So, you know, I owe the biggest apology to Alex because at the end of my, my third and final tour, you know, we did get some of the interpreters out and all my personal interpreters that worked with me, we had a large pool of about two dozen, you know, my personal interpreters, we got out and we identified other interpreters to get out under the special immigration program at that time. And Alex was just quite frankly missed at that time. So I got involved in Alex's file around about 2014 um, when I was brand new to lawyering. Uh, and we tried all different kinds of uh, means and methods to get Alex in here. We wrote all kinds of letters and we got, you know, nothing, you know, at that particular juncture, six, seven years ago, there was just no appetite or interest in the Afghan file whatsoever. And of course, it just meant that we missed so many of those people because that immigration program had been closed at that point. Our argument at that point was that the program should be reopened. It was a good program. It worked well. Um, and it was just unfortunate that so many got missed. Alex, as you've been listening to uh, to Major Watson and uh, General Milner, what are you thinking? What do you want Canadians listening to this program right now to know about you and to know about your fellow interpreters? Who knows where? We don't know where they are. What What do you want to tell Canadians? Well, first of all, I would like to thank Major, Major uh, General D. Milner for being on the show and doing such Great, great work for the interpreters, especially for the left-behind ones. And as well, uh, I would like to thank once again Major Alexander Watson. He was doing really, really good job, and he's still doing it, you know, and supporting the uh, former interpreters. So what I want to tell the listeners is that um, they have to track uh, where the interpreters are. They need to be pulled out, extracted out, and, and being brought to safety in Canada or anywhere else, I mean, at the moment. I know I'm safe, but I don't feel safe at all because the rest of my body, they're not feeling safe. They're not in a safe environment. You might be in danger still. And uh, the, the listeners, they understand what we're talking about. We're talking about families, not only the uh, one individual who helped or assisted the Canadian or CAF members. We're talking also about their families, about their children, infants, uh, they need to be in a, a safe place. I mean, ASAP. Yeah. General Milner to hear Alex. And I've heard him for 10 years now. 
and I've heard other interpreters, and you've spoken to more interpreters than I have. And, and um, Major Watson, you've spoken to more interpreters than I have, but you were there. You were both in Afghanistan. To hear him, to know the situation the way it is, to know the Prime Minister said, you were there for us, we're going to be here for you now. General Milner, we've let them down, we're letting them down. It's federal government indifference, which is keeping Alex out of the country. Am I overstating things? No, I don't think you are, Roy. I, I, you know, this is this has been wait. It's been far too long. Uh, the situation in Afghanistan continues to deteriorate. Um, you know, we're seeing some movement, but it's not enough. You know, the prime minister said forty thousand. Uh, I don't think it's ten thousand that we've got out, but again, the numbers I would think more seven thousand. But we still got so much work, more work to do, and it's just it's it's. It's unacceptable how slow the process is. Um, we're, we're teamed up working with them, but we're just the, the, the situation. It's just not moving fast enough. So we, we need to continue to put pressure on this government. Uh, they've been they've been a little bit thrown off with the Ukraine, but it doesn't matter. We we can do two things at once. Um, so yeah, we, we need to, we need to get you in in the Canada, Alex, and and we need to get your Afghan friends and and the great afghans that worked alongside of us in afghanistan out because the situation continues to get worse so yeah it's unacceptable yeah general the federal government giving you any money to help get the interpreters out we we have received money uh but that has stopped uh fairly recently um we need to get that going again um the with with the ukraine and and another situation, they've, they've stopped uh, the money, but uh, we believe that that's going to be restarted uh, soon. It needs to be restarted soon uh, because we've got Afghans in safe houses and, and we have, you know, we've got teams of, of, of great Canadians that are still trying to get these, our, these great Afghans out. So we need continued support um, and, uh, and we, need, we need it now. Major Watson, what do you think that uh, veterans of the Afghan campaign, Canadian veterans, listening right now, what are you thinking? Well, I got two thoughts, Roy. One is, you know, they're our brothers and sisters. I mean, they fought with us, so the bombs are extremely close. They endured everything we endured. And like I said, they endured it year after year after year. You know, there was no let up for them. And the second thing is the interpreters that you know, that I, I have worked to get out of Afghanistan and now in Canada. They're the best possible Canadian citizens you could ever imagine. I mean, they already speak English. Uh, they're extremely resourceful. These are the, these are the smart, the quick, the resourceful, those that show initiative. You know, they've become salesmen. They've become uh, big in the uh, contracting and construction world. Uh, they're metal workers. They're body workers. These are people with all kinds of training and abilities that will only make Canada better. So those are the two thoughts I would add. Okay. One thing, uh, Sajjad, uh, last thing, and I'll tell the Prime Minister or any of his representatives if they want to know where you are. I'll provide them that information. But if you could say one thing, and we only have about 20 seconds, what do you say? What do you want to say to Mr. Trudeau? I want to say to Mr. Trudeau, he has to help those who really deserve. I mean, help the Afghan interpreters. They serve alongside CAF members. They sacrifice. They need to be in safe place. But if Trudeau was to turn his back on, I mean, his back on them, that's not fair at all.
Admiral Mark Norman joins us, uh, former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, former vice chief of staff for the Canadian Armed Forces, and Canada has settled on the purchase of 88 F-35 fighter planes. We've talked to the Admiral before about the procurement process for the military, the federal government purchasing equipment for the CAF, why the F-35s now and not seven years ago, and what else does the CAF require immediately in an increasingly dangerous world? Admiral Norman, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm really well, Roy, and good afternoon to you and your listeners. Um, Looking forward to our discussion. May I ask you first for your reaction as a as a lifelong member of the military for just your reaction to what Russia has been doing to Ukrainians and to Ukraine? Yeah, well, we've discussed this before, but sadly, it just continues to get worse. It's atrocious. Um, it is absolutely unprovoked, unnecessary, and unacceptable. Um, and uh, like uh, all of your listeners, I, I just am truly um, disgusted by what is happening and the impact it's having on the Ukrainian people and, uh, sadly, uh, the long-term impacts it's going to have on their country, I'm sure. Yeah. And the worldwide spotlight is on the Russians, and they don't seem to care a bit about about that. Admiral, let's talk about this, uh, the purchase of the F-35 for Canada's military. 88 of them will be coming. They'll start to arrive, I believe, in 2025. What's the importance of this particular purchase nationally and internationally? Well, I, I think the first thing is that it's a long overdue decision to replace the uh, aging uh, F-18 fleet that we've been operating since the early 1980s. Uh, the second thing I would say is that it is a long overdue reflection of uh, necessity to invest in the armed forces, and this is a good signal. And I think it's also an important signal to our allies that uh, we um, are basically prepared to work with uh, dozens of them as partners uh, in this very important international program, uh, which is producing the F-35 um, for um, a variety of different customers around the world. The Allies, our allies, NATO, weren't very happy with us. They, I think some of them were actually very unhappy with us, with the lack of material that we had and what we could provide to an international military obligation. Um, did you uh, did you feel that when when you were uh, uh, leading the Royal Canadian Navy? Did you have a sense that the, the that our allies were thinking, "Come on, Canada, step up to the plate"? Yeah, it, it's interesting because um, the the reactions uh, came in a variety of different ways, but fundamentally, um, on a sort of uh, individual soldier to soldier, sailor to sailor, ship to ship uh, level. Um, the participation of Canada in international operations was hugely appreciated and highly respected. Um, as, as things became more strategic and more political, however, uh, there were always concerns about um, Canada's uh, bench strength, I guess, is the best way to describe it for your listeners. Um, the extent to which we might have to be reliant on other um, allied capabilities uh, if if we had to work together for extended periods of time. And, of course, at the political level is the issue of, of uh, 
of defense spending and whether it was or was not sufficient on a go-forward basis. Okay. And and we can look at both sides of the uh, the House because successive governments didn't do what they should have done for the Canadian military. I think political considerations came before the military considerations. Anyone I've talked about this, we everybody in the Canadian military is a volunteer. So if our young men and women volunteer to wear the the, the Canadian flag shoulder badge and they're willing to go into battle and willing to sacrifice their lives for this country, they deserve the very best in the way of equipment that we can provide for them and, and not make do with old stuff or not have enough stuff they deserve the very best. Admiral, what, what's your sense about what this this um, decision to purchase the F-35s may mean? Do you think there'll be a speeding up of procurement? And and I'm bunching a bunch of questions here. We'll, we'll end with this one. What else do we need, like submarines? Right. Well, I mean, the the list of things that is needed, um, sadly, would, would take you and I uh, a bit longer than we've got this afternoon. So let me park that for the moment. I'll come back to it. Um, you know, what does this mean and what does it signal? I would not read too much into this, sadly. Uh, I wish I could tell your listeners that this was um, a watershed moment in terms of uh, Canadian defence procurement, but uh, it, it, it's not. Um, there are far more things that are required than um, are currently acknowledged publicly. And um, I, I don't think that uh, we're going to see a massive change in the way that things are um, delivered. Th- this program is an interesting example, the F-35, because as I mentioned, um, we, we are, are, we're already part of this consortium. Uh, we'll now be more actively engaged as uh, now declared um, purchasing partners. Um, and there's advantages to that because the production is already underway. Um, we can schedule our buy uh, schedule into the broader uh, program. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of advantages to that. We're now part of a, a much deeper um, uh, supply system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that may allow us to actually get some airplanes faster than we would otherwise um, but that should not be misinterpreted. And I guess the other thing I would say is that going back to your the second part of your question, um, as, as we potentially see um, an increased uh, shopping list, if I can put it that way, um, we, we have to be very careful that it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the equipment that's necessary is actually going to be delivered. It just means we're adding more things to a shopping list of equipment which be delivered in a timely fashion. So uh, I don't want to sound cynical or negative, but unless we make some fundamental changes, um, all we're doing is making the list longer, more expensive, and it's just going to take that much longer to actually deliver the equipment. I got it. So it's in the shopping cart, but nobody's trotted out the uh, the visa number yet. Well, and, and even if the money is there, and I, and I would suggest it is, part of the challenge here is, is capacity, part of the challenge is process, part of the challenge um, is that uh, w- we, we make lots of promises, and you're right, it, this is not um, the fault of one government over another, uh, it tends to be um, a common pattern, lots of promises, and then uh, we don't actually deliver um, all the time, or if we do, it takes much longer than it needs to. All right. 
Let me ask you about, uh, let's take you back into the uh, RCN days. What about submarines? Uh, how necessary are they in this fractious world? And you've talked to us uh, for several years now about how fractious the world is and what the danger, uh, how dangerous a world it is. And we're seeing this now happen, as you described. Where do submarines fit into the overall need for the Canadian military and the security of this country? Okay, so um, it should come as no surprise to you or your listeners that I would categorize um, submarines as an essential capability for any country that uh, has has uh, maritime, and by that I mean um, aquatic interests, oceans, in other words, and that uh, um, it would be an essential capability for a Navy like the RCN. But why? I think that's the important discussion. Fundamentally, the submarines sir, can do a whole variety of um, really important things, but it serves a very important primary purpose, and that is to control water space. Um, and if you imagine um, water space going from the surface of the ocean down to uh, the, the bottom of the ocean, um, you can put ships on the top of it, and you can put aircraft above them, and you can have sonar systems that can go into the water to some degree, but fundamentally, uh, you can't control that column of water space that, that, that is so important in naval operations um, if you're not actually in it. And uh, the way that you're in it is in a submarine. Um, and uh, if, if we ever uh, wish or intend to um, control water own territorial waters or potentially the need to go elsewhere around the world and control a body of water even if it's just temporarily um, the only really effective way of doing that at the moment and for the foreseeable future and by that I mean decades uh, into the future despite advancements in technology is the submarine right. so that's a long answer and we can unpack that uh, more at some point if you'd like this issue that is really so prevalent, so important, so critically important to all of us, and that's energy supply. And we know the stress it's under in Europe. We've heard from our guests. We're about to hear from another very well-informed guest in Europe, uh, Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, whose Wall Street Journal op-ed, uh, Be Afraid of Nuclear War, Not Climate Change, has generated a tremendous amount of interest and uh, opposition Dr. Lomborg writes, net zero will make energy prices explode even more. We just talked about that a bit. And uh, he adds in his newsletter, which is right around the world, solar and wind need backup provided by gas. Also, cold is nine times deadlier than heat, killing 4.5 million people each year. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center and visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, was named by Time magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential people. His most recent book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Dr. Lomborg, good to have you back on the program. What's the reality in Europe today as far as energy availability is concerned, or lack of energy availability? Well, Roy, it's great to be back on the show. And I think everyone in Europe is realizing that we're really dependent on energy. It's what actually keeps us warm in winter. It's not like it's a secret, but I think to many people, they haven't been thinking about this before, but suddenly they realize 
I actually need affordable energy that keeps me warm all the time. I need energy 24-7. And of course, what we've been promised is, oh, we'll go renewable. Uh, but what are you going to do when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing? And what are you going to do to heat your home, which is mostly not done with electricity? You need Russian gas. And that is right now a really bad choice. You know that our prime minister has said, and we've talked about this yesterday, we've talked about it earlier today in the program, he wants to see a 42% cut of emissions in gas and oil over the next eight years. That's from 2019 levels. What's your assessment of that? And I'm, I'm just going to add to this that you did write that in your view, in your uh, calculations, net zero will make prices explode. What do you think of Mr. Trudeau's decision? Well, again, I don't know the specifics of the Canadian proposal, but we do know that this attempt, and that's what uh, uh, Trudeau is trying to do, this attempt to reach net zero uh, by mid-century is not only almost a fantasy, but it's incredibly expensive. So both McKinsey and Bank of America estimate this will cost at least $5 trillion every year for the next 30 years. And there's nobody who's willing to pay that, not well-meaning rich Canadians and rich Americans and rich Europeans. But of course, remember, we matter almost nothing in this. There is absolutely no one who's willing to pay this in China, in India, in the rest of Southeast Asia, in Africa. And, and so this is really just a, a, a masquerade. It's something that you say, but you're not actually going to do it because what happens when prices will skyrocket, as Obama famously said. Well, people vote those kinds of politicians out of office. Mm -hmm. And it's unlikely that developing economies with large populations will decide to go for net zero in 2050. Oh, absolutely. Remember, uh, according to the uh, McKinsey studies, uh, this would cost about half of the global tax intake in the world. Imagine India, imagine Africa paying more than 10% of their GDP every year to achieve net zero. What they want is to get their populations out of poverty, which means much more energy, much more available energy, not just so that they can have a solar lamp so their kids can study at night, which is nice, but also that they can have pumps in their agriculture, that they can run uh, machinery that can actually pull them out of poverty. And that requires, to a very large extent, fossil fuels right now. What we have to realize is this is not about feeling good in Canada or elsewhere. This is about making sure that the entire world can fix a large number of problems, not just climate, but also the many other challenges that faces the world. And I think in, in that sense, what Ukraine and the invasion, the terrible invasion in Ukraine is really showing us is, wait, there are other and more important things than just climate change. We need to make sure we deal with all of these problems and don't yeah. just obsess about climate and forget everything else. Yeah, we have no idea what's coming our way by 2030, even less by, by 2050. If Europe is the proverbial canary in the coal mine, as far as energy supply is concerned, and energy construction is concerned, what's the sensible plan to respond to climate change in an effective manner? Well, right now we need to address our energy needs, and that's about getting uh, more LNG harbors. It's about making sure we start uh, using shale gas. This is basically what the U.S. did 
They opened up the shale revolution and basically managed to reduce their carbon emissions more than any other nation on the planet over the last 10 years because they switched from coal to gas. That's what Europe needs to do as well. We need, of course, to get everybody else to do that as well. And then in the long run, we need to have cheaper fourth generation nuclear and many other technologies. And that will happen through innovation. We need to focus on innovation because, quite frankly, if we think that making energy incredibly expensive in the rich world is going to inspire the poor world to do the same, we're just deluded. Of course, they're not going to do that. They want cheap and reliable energy. What we have to deliver is the innovations that will make it possible. Imagine if fourth generation nuclear is as cheap and as safe and as incredible as we're being told it might be. Then, of course, everyone will switch, not because their climate work, but simply because it'll be cheaper and better. But that's the innovations that we need to get, not just these feel-good policies that we're getting right now. So what are the chances that um, a country like Germany would go back to more nuclear power? They've cut back to one plant. That's supposed to be closing down. We have the German energy minister telling the people of Germany to cut back on their use of electricity. Similar message going to the people of France, or again, the canary in the coal mine. Is nuclear in the future in Europe? And it's interesting that Elon Musk is telling the world to go nuclear. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of the possible solutions. So remember, there's a very big difference between what Germany and many other countries have done, namely shutting down existing nuclear power plants. That's just, there's no other word for it. That's just stupid. If you have a nuclear power plant, You've already paid for it, which is the biggest cost. You've already committed to the decommissioning, which is the second largest cost. Actually running the power plant when it's there costs almost nothing, and it generates an enormous amount of CO2-free energy. That's just stupid to shut it down. So nobody should shut down existing nuclear power plants. Building new ones, on the other hand, turn out to be fairly expensive, and that's why a lot of countries are somewhat reluctant to do that. And that's where we need the innovation. I think there's a good chance we're going to get a lot more nuclear because when you start asking people to you know, lower their temperatures to 19 degrees and freeze a little and know you can't run your car on Sundays and all that kind of stuff, that yeah. feels very much like the 70s and people are not going to vote for it. Now, the International Energy Agency is saying we shouldn't be allowed to drive our cars on Sundays or even days or odd days or whatever plan they they have in mind. Why are you such a lightning rod? Why, are, why do you c- cause such polarized opinion? <laughs> I don't well, understand. Actually, I don't, and I'm not, I know that's going to earn I, me emails, but why? I, I don't actually think I'm all that controversial. There's a lot of people who don't want to hear this, because if you've wedded your life to saying climate change is the only challenge that matters, obviously you're annoyed when somebody comes and points out, well, that's actually not true. Lots and lots of other challenges. But I think in some ways, The Ukraine crisis has made us all realize that there are many other challenges. Remember, just before the bombs started falling in uh, in Kiev and elsewhere, you actually had the World Economic Forum, you know, the richest guys in the world that get together in Davos and Switzerland in January. They voted on what is the most what is the biggest risk for the world for the next 10 years. And they said that's failure to act on climate. No, it's not, guys. It's actually Ukraine. And, of course, a lot of other things like failing to get people out of poverty, failing to fix 
tuberculosis and all these other challenges. We've just come out of, a, of, of the deadliest pandemic in a century. Uh, we have inflation and possible recession in front of us. There are many other challenges. Now, climate is also a challenge. We should also fix it, but we should fix it smartly and we should fix it cheaply. People hate me saying that because it, it disturbs you know, they're, they're, they're feeling good about themselves. And of course, they're, uh, uh, they're fundraising for scary things like climate. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 